I've been thinking a lot about what food fits what body, because as we were talking about, all bodies are different. But I've really been liking the idea of returning to traditional cultural foods for bodies. So the idea that your body has, especially for women, like for thousands of years, has adapted certain cultural foods and lifestyles that that your body and your stomach in particular has reacted to. And in returning to your traditional foods, your body might be more happy than if you're eating very highly processed foods that your body can't digest the same way. You know, gut health has been really big in terms of food trends. So being aware of your microbiome and your gut health, which leads me to that, I think in particularly for women, that maternal gut instinct or that like very feminine gut instinct that we all have, I never really considered that that could also be connected to our food. So what we put into our bodies as food for women literally also helps us have a gut instinct about what we're eating or what we're doing. Your lifelong passions, dreams, and aspirations. Your joys and creative spurs. Your femininity. Your success. All in one place. This is Girl Skill with your host, Anna Rova. Hello, girlfriends, and welcome to another awesome episode of Girl Skill Podcast. I have a confession to make. This is my first recording after a long while, after maternity leave. For those of you who know... And for those of you who don't know, basically, I am currently on maternity leave. My baby's about two months old and I haven't been recording or doing anything really substantial, you know, in coaching, podcasting and so on. I have been releasing podcast episodes, so that's great. So for everybody who's new, welcome to the podcast. The podcast has grown during this time of my maternity leave. My baby's two months old. It's been a complete transformation for me and a big, big change. And I'm going to record an episode about my birth story and how is it with the newborn later. But yeah, basically wanted to tell you that. I'm like, how do I do this again? Anyways, so welcome. Welcome to everyone who's new. Welcome to everyone who's old. I'm so happy you're here. I sometimes get your messages and I see the ratings and reviews that you basically write for the podcast. And I'm very, very grateful for all of you and that you're here and uh, following the journey, listening to the episodes. So before I tell you about this episode, which is another amazing one, obviously on the girl skill, I want to thank all of, again, I want to thank everyone who's leaving a rating and review on iTunes. And I would highly recommend that you do that so that all the other women discover this podcast. And I want to read you a review from The Small Critic. I have no idea who you are, this small critic, but thank you so much. And here's what you wrote. I've tried out some female podcasts and this is just on a whole different level. Woohoo! It's so authentic, fun, natural, inspiring. Literally all the good stuff. I can't stop listening. Sometimes women talk about different ventures they've taken and it's hard for me to relate it to my goals. But Anna provides such a variety of guests who are all so unique and real that I actually find every single episode to speak to me and help me with my personal career life struggles. The energy and positivity about possibilities and lazy power is the best part too. Really improves my mood and gets me going while I'm working. Love, love, love. Awesome. And she titled it, Can't Stop Listening at Work. (laughs) This is so amazing. Thank you so much, The Small Critic. And if you haven't reached out to me on Instagram, please do. And I'd like to personally thank you as well. And I hope that this is exactly the review that I'd, I'd hope to be getting more and more. All right. So today's episode is with Sarah Dugnan. Dignan. I still can't pronounce her last name. Um, and it's about anthropology of health. Who knew that that could be a subject? So who is Sarah? Sarah is a host and creator of Anthro Dish, which is a podcast of her own, where she talks about the connections between food, culture, and identity using an anthropological lens. Sarah is a PhD candidate at McMaster University specializing in the anthropology of health. She focuses on looking at research issues through a biocultural lens, meaning she likes to think about all the ways in which society, culture, environment, biology, economy, politics, and so on can inform the way people interact and behave with each other. Curious thing is Sarah has interviewed me on her podcast which I found actually really a really, really cool podcast. You know, this is a niche subject that not many people are interested in or talk about, but this is how she builds her tribe. And so if you're interested, go to her website, anthrodish.com. I'm going to link to the my, my interview in the show notes, which you can find at girlskill.com slash 95. You'll find my the link to my interview on her podcast there where I talk about, you know, where I come from, Moldovan food and how and what I think about food and my struggles with food and adult acne and all of that good stuff. 
So what we talk about in this podcast, which is really interesting, we talk about what the hell is health anthropology and what influenced Sarah to go into this field. She's like 27, I think, or 28, and she's already a PhD candidate. Basically, the last couple of years, she just, well, the last, I don't know, six, seven years she spent studying, which is awesome. Sarah's views on women's bodies and food from contemporary culture and political perspective. The journey of excavating skeletons in Nova Scotia and Belize and telling stories of the dead in their, in a respectful way. I found that amazing. Like, I can't imagine excavating any skeletons or whatever. That'd be terrifying. But I'm imagining her being like, you know, the Tom Ryder. We talk about women's bodies not being properly researched and explored throughout history. The concept of biased citizens and how it influences modern women, the shifting beauty ideals around the world, the influence of media versus healthy habits surrounding body issues, and also influence of culture and social media on our health and body image, how to choose your own course of living in optimum health, current shifts in food culture, which is really cool and interesting, the connection between food food and our gut instinct, which I found incredible. It's like what food you put inside of you actually influences how strong is your gut instinct. I was like, what? Hmm, Interesting. And of course, we talk about the future of anthropology and beyond the anthropology fields and what are the possibilities in this amazing field for her and for anyone else. And stay until the end of the episode because also Sarah is going to recommend for us a couple of people to follow on Instagram that relate to travel, motherhood, and also food. And Sarah's going to recommend three amazing books. Again, one about motherhood, which is really controversial. You know, feminism, farming, women who dig, and a really fun one, a really sarcastic and comic book as well. All right. Hope you enjoy this episode and I'll see you at the end. Girl skill. Female success. Redefined. So on Girl Skill today, we have Sarah Dignan all the way from Canada joining us today. And today we're talking about food and anthropology and women's issues and all of that good stuff. So Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. I've been on your podcast. That was a really interesting experience. It was my first time, I think, talking about food and like where I come from and my roots and everything. So thanks for having me there. For all the listeners, if you go to Anthrodish podcast and we'll link in the show notes to my episode, hopefully it's going to come out. I think it was a very interesting conversation. So I'm excited to have you, Sarah, today. Thanks for coming on. And we will begin with a couple of fun questions as usual. So Sarah, tell me, what are you grateful for? I mean, it's a very simple answer, but I'm very grateful for my family. And I think I didn't have that full appreciation until I had my daughter, but I'm thankful for her and for my partner and like the nuclear family that supports us as well. (laughs) Awesome. What was the last thing you Googled? (laughs) The last thing I Googled was blonde hair. So like, I'm trying to figure out the way to have like brown and blonde hair. (laughs) So I was looking for images for that. Wow, bronze yeah. hair. <laughs> yeah. I definitely never heard of that. Uh, yeah. so, that's interesting. Awesome. Love it. What would be the title of your autobiography? Oh my gosh, that's a good question. I think hmm, I was going to go the food route and say like dishing up knowledge or something like that. But I don't know. That's a really tough question. I think either dishing up knowledge or uh, something related to poetry and film, because I think that's something that I'm always very attached to as well. Mm, love it. If you had a tattoo, where and what would it be? Well, I actually have a few tattoos, but I can tell you the next one that I'm getting if you'd like. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, so I'm getting this really beautiful, it's like a flower mixed with crystals by this tattoo artist named Miss Lee. So it's going to be like this big giant one on my ribs to kind of cover up an old tattoo as well. Mm, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Love it. And uh, what was the wildest thing you've ever done? Oh, I think the wildest thing I've ever done, and I'm sure my mother will hate this if she's listening, but I... um... There was a night when I was living in Belize where we met some people who were travelers and they had a pickup truck and they said, hey, do you want to drive up to the mountains tonight and like continue having a celebration there? So uh, me and a couple of friends got into the back of the pickup truck, but we're just like hanging on and then going up this really rocky mountain to this like isolated house that we didn't know. It was super fun. But in that moment, I was like, what's going to happen? And? 
what happened? <laughs> uh, we had a really fun time and we just like met some people that were from different countries and we all stay in touch. So it was oh. very safe by the end. <laughs> okay. I thought it was like a scary story. Oh my God. No, <laughs> no very happy story. All right. Awesome. So a couple of deep questions. What is your biggest fear? been thinking about that a lot, actually. I think my biggest fear has shifted since I've had my daughter and I think it's dying. And I think before that, I didn't really consider my mortality, but you know, even just being on a plane whenever there's turbulence, I just get so nervous about not being there for her. So I think that's my new biggest fear, which is a very... For me, it's very new. So I don't really know how to react to it the same way that I did some of my older fears. Mm, I never thought about fear of death in perspective of motherhood, well, because I'm not a mother yet. I'm currently pregnant. (laughs) But, oh, that's really interesting. Okay. So the fear is like, if you're not there, who's going to take care of her and how is she? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like this, it's, you know, both the physical sensation of being disconnected to her in that sense. And then also just like, you know, who is going to provide for her? Who's, you know, who's going to be that person that, uh, that she looks up to. So it's a really, really interesting shift in my brain. Hmm. And she's your daughter's too, right? Yeah, she's too. So it's, yeah, really only been the past couple of years where this has started to rise. Mm, interesting. Okay. And my next question is, who are you when no one is watching? Oh, <laughs> I love that question. I think I'm a big goofball when no one's watching. Like I know when I'm around the house, I'm very klutzy and I just kind of like make fun of myself when I'm by myself, when I do these sorts of things. But in, you know, sometimes in situations when I don't know people, I'm much more shy about my klutziness or about my goofiness. So that might not come out. I think sometimes that takes years for people to see that side of me. Mm, Yeah. Interesting. What would you do if nothing was required of you? Oh, if nothing was required of me, I think I would probably, I think my dream would be to retreat to the the woods and like live in a cabin and write a book to be entirely honest I think that would be ideal (laughs) I love that we can still do that (laughs) oh yeah totally I plan on it (laughs) awesome love it uh what what is femininity for you Oh, I love that question. I think femininity is, um, you know, it's both being aware of your body and like how powerful it is as a woman and how it's how it's different, obviously, from male bodies. So being in tune with your body, I think, is very is part of being very feminine. But I also think being in tune with your body and being in tune with other women and the relationships and experiences that are shared. So kind of being within that vein and being aware of that in day to day life or in bigger discussions. That's how I see it, at least. Mm, beautiful. Do you consider yourself successful and why? <laughs> yes and no. I think successful in terms of the life that I've started to create for myself with my partner and everything we're doing with our podcast and just like, you know, the trips that we take. I think that's a form of success that I don't stop to appreciate always, but that's so beautiful. I'm on my way to becoming successful, I think, in terms of career, but I'm still still pretty young, pretty fresh to it. So it's, um, you know, have some more frustrating days than not right now, but I think it's it's on its way. And I think in a couple of years, I'll be much more confident about that success. Cool. And last question of the segment is, on a scale of one to 10, Sarah, how excited are you about life right now and why? Oh, I always love the question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say I'm probably... I'd probably be at like an eight and a half because I'm so excited for, as I said, like my entire life, my trajectory with my partner and what we're doing. I think because I'm doing my PhD right now and I'm in that phase of almost a bit of self-doubt that kind of takes away from total excitement. But even within that, there's so much to discover and to learn. So it's, yeah. So I'm very excited, but also like a little, I guess, nervous about some of my PhD stuff. (laughs) It's good. Love how uh, honest and and raw you are about this. (laughs) That's awesome. It's all a journey, right? So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. So now is the time, Sarah, to introduce yourself and tell us who you are. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> so I'm Sarah Dugan. I am 26. I'm a mother to a two and a half year old and I live in Toronto, Ontario, which is in Canada. I am a PhD candidate at McMaster and I study anthropology of health. And I also run a podcast called Anthrodish, which looks at how food and culture and identity all intertwine and and connect in different ways for people around the world. That's a great elevator pitch you've got there. Good work. (laughs) Thank you. How does does a 26-year-old is already a PhD candidate? 
Like, how did that work? You went on a fast track with your education, it seems. Oh, I don't know if it's a fast track as much as I just have never actually been out of school. So I just oh. like, yeah, didn't take time off. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So how, how did that work? Paint a picture for us. So I guess you finished high school and then just went straight into studying anthropology all the way? Yeah. So I mean, I yeah, I finished high school. I started out in university having no clue what I want to do, as I think most university students do. And then around first or second year, I fell into anthropology, fell in love with it, and couldn't see myself doing anything but that. So I did my undergrad. I worked really hard through that, pushed through, jumped right into my master's at like three months after I graduated, did my master's in two years, And then I'm pretty sure at one point I was defending my master's. And then two weeks after that, I started my PhD. So it was a very quick turnover between all three of them. Mm. And for everybody who I actually, at some point I was considering, so I'm, I'm still in search of, I want to do my master's degree. Nice. Uh, not necessarily for you know the career, because I, I don't think I'll ever be a career woman or whatever but just for the educational aspect, like I, I really start missing, and I think I'm, I'm now five years out of college, but you know, I'm just really missing that academic part. Like I really want to do, write a research paper and actually go, go in there and explore. And because there is this world of you know, personal growth and personal experience and research, but then there's another like guided academic research, especially if you go to a good school and everything. But anyways, I, well, why I'm sharing this is because, and of course, I want to teach at some point at university. Oh, cool. I don't know. It's like a dream of mine. So why I'm sharing this with you is because anthropology was a subject that I am kind of considering, although I don't think I know what it means like specifically <laughs> so here with us how did this love for anthropology start for you why did you decide to pursue it what is it and then of course you're saying that you are now specializing in anthropology of health so that would be a great time to also kind of explain what that is as well oh yeah for sure i actually really love this question because i always have the story i think back to quite frequently So in first year, I just took anthropology because I had to take an extracurricular course and I wasn't really wanting to take you know, more chemistry or physics or things like that. So admittedly, I thought it was going to be a bit of a bird course. And then I took it and the instructor was just this really magical woman. Like I've never seen someone so in tune with herself and so eccentric and like so loving all of the parts that make her herself. And she was doing this really fantastic research in Jamaica, looking at banana plantations and how that impacted the economy in Jamaica. But then would also at the same time, like she'd be in the middle of a lecture and just stop it because she heard ghosts in the hallway. So I just fell in love with her because I had never met someone that bizarre. And I was like, if this is what this world is, I want to be part of it. So yeah, so I fell into it, I guess, to describe what anthropology is. At its core, it's the study of human people, behavior, culture, attitudes, and it can be split up. So typically it's split up into the past. So looking at how humans lived and behaved in the past would be archaeology. Looking at contemporary populations would be cultural anthropology. So looking at how different sorts of political or environmental influences are impacting different communities would be how I would describe cultural anthropology. There's linguistics, which is the study of language, and I don't know much about that realm. And then what I do is biological anthropology. So you're looking at human health from the past and from the present, but using a lens that looks at how biology and culture are intertwined. Yeah. So I look at contemporary populations. So that's why I sometimes say anthropology of health, because I think it looks more at health systems that are existing currently and challenges them to think a little bit more holistically about how we see health. So beyond the physical, how are we looking at how the environment or politics or social connections are influencing our health on a day-to-day -day basis? Mm, very interesting, especially so important today, right? In great times of change, yes. and especially with food. And I know that you're interviewing women around the world. You've interviewed me as well about you know, how does that influence and you're taking more of a holistic approach uh, to it. And your podcast is amazing because you also tackle all of these issues and in interviewing people around the world, like, you know, who've written books about 
food and culture. And like there was this woman about farming feminism and the fight to feed the world and, you know, dining alone. And I just, I just <laughs> love that. So the podcast is about food, but through the perspective of, you know, culture really. So that's awesome. So Sarah, let's, let's focus about, as I told you that the podcast is pivoting a little bit to talk about women's issues specifically. And I know this is like perhaps a broad question, but I'm curious what you have to share with us. And I know you've worked in Latin America and now that you're interviewing all these women and, you know, I love interviewing podcasters because I feel like I not only am talking to you right now and your own personal experience, but also to all of the guests you've interviewed, right? Because we're oh, all, I love that. <laughs> as podcasters, we're accumulating all of these stories and we are kind of channels for different voices and stories. So... I'd be very curious what you have to say in general, you know, through your studies as well and of human, basically, culture and history and food in in terms of, you know, women's health and women's bodies and even anything you want to share about current political and cultural, you know, influences, I guess, on women's bodies and food and our relationship to food. You know, I've interviewed a lot of guests, well, a couple of guests on the show about emotional eating and, you know, a bit, a little bit about hormones. And I have a couple of episodes that are health related, but yeah, so these are subjects I want to tackle more and more. So just curious, I mean, it's up to you where you want to start and then we'll take it from there. Cool. Oh my gosh. That's an amazing. I'm like so excited just thinking about those questions. So I think, you know, if you want to take a historical route and we can, we can talk more about like contemporary as well. But I think from, from what I've seen and what I've been reading, women in history tend to be forgotten. That's kind of the case. When you look, especially at health, you don't really see the narratives of women or women's bodies being represented the same way that you do with men. And a lot of it is, you know, if you think about excavating skeletons, which I've done a fair bit at this point, a lot of the times the burials are, you know, graves of young soldiers who happen to be men. So you don't get the same information about women's bodies and like what happened to them, what they were eating, how they died, things like that. So I think there's been a big shift in the past 10 years to really reflect on why we didn't include women in this. And I think that's also because of our contemporary shifts and awareness of women and women's rights and feminism, I think that's played a huge role in history books as well, which I think is very fascinating. So let me stop you right there for a quick question. You have actually excavated skeletons. Yeah, yeah. How does that work? And tell me about this because this is like fascinating. So I actually, I work in the summer out in Nova Scotia at the Fortress of Lewisburg, which is this really beautiful old 18th century fortress that was French occupied in Canada before Canada became Canada. And it was a, I think it was only around for about a hundred years. So it was a very short time period. But during that time period, things were very tough. So there were a lot of burials and there's kind of like a point called Rochefort Point at the fortress where most of the cemetery is. But because it's right on the ocean, it's actually starting to erode. And some of these bodies are starting to uh, unfortunately erode as well. So my team partnered up with Parks Canada to basically protect those individuals and remove them before, you know, something horrible happened with the coastal erosion, analyze them, and then repatri- or rebury them in a safer place down the road as well. And how long does the skeleton or the bones actually last? How long do they last? Like for centuries and centuries or? Yeah, yeah. It really depends on where they're buried. I mean, soil can be really acidic or it can be kind of neutral. So these are about 300 years old and they're in pretty good preservation. I've also excavated in Belize and those were, you know, it was just tiny little fragments of bone left at that point because that was over a thousand years old. So and really acidic. So it really depends on where you are, but you can you can find specimens or skeletal remains, yeah, that can be like thousands of years old. And does that fascinate you and and, and why? Because I'm I'm thinking like, you know, I have a very special relationship with death and skeletons. I have I think most people would be like, Oh my God, this is I mean, I have a big fear. I think it comes from, you know, my mom passed away when I was really young and just dead bodies in general. And I think I'm not the only one, probably majority of population, majority of humans are like, never want to see that, never want to touch it. And so I'm just curious, like you probably look at this as just research and work and you're like a researcher and an an archaeologist of some sort. And you kind of look at this as like, yeah, no big deal. You know, it's my (laughs) day thing. 
Well, I mean, yes and no. I think um, I'm very aware day to day how lucky I am to have that opportunity and also that I am, you know, excavating people who used to be alive and used to have very full lives. So I'm very, yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't tend to get squeamish about it because as you said, it is work for me, but it's a job where I get to tell the stories of the dead in a way that's respectful of them as well. So I think that... Yeah, I am aware of it, but it's also... I think sometimes I forget that it's not normal for people when I talk to them. Um. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, Well, this was a little bit of a detour. So let's get back to the subject. So you said that throughout history, women's bodies, you know, were not really explored studies and basically not being paid attention to. Uh, And now things are obviously changing because of the different cultural and political trends happening. Yes, very much so. So I think that, and particularly in my field, so physical or biological anthropology, we actually, I think a study came out a couple of years ago and our discipline is made up of 60% women. So the people leading the research are all women. So naturally, we are looking more to women's stories and women's stories of health. So I think that, yeah, so I think we're starting to look at how women's bodies are affected differently by health. So, you know, it tends to be that women have a more maternal approach and not necessarily that they're all mothers. But when you think about women's bodies, they think more about other people and supporting other people and not necessarily putting their their selves first. So that takes a toll on people's physical health as well as emotional health. And it's also, there's a really interesting concept called the biocitizen that Susan Greenhall came up with. And it's talking about how women in North America or, or people in North America in general, I suppose, they're, they're made to be biologically, there's this belief that they have to be biologically perfect almost. So they fight towards this cultural ideal of woman's body and everything that they do. So going to the gym and, and eating well and doing all of these things, like there's a hyper awareness of fitting into this biological ideal of a body. Yeah. I mean, with everything that's going on, right? Have you found that, have you studied other cultures in, in that sense? Because I mean, obviously, you know, these things, I mean, standards of beauty and body and everything are changing throughout history. Like in the past, you know, a plump woman was seen as the standard of health and beauty. Mm-hmm. So that she could, you know, bear children and everything. Now it's all the perfect skinny bodies and everything, right? So very, very interesting how around the world, you know, all the tribes and even I guess Latin American countries, that idea of a perfect you know, female body or whatever is also different. So I'm curious whether like anything to share there or through your studies. Yeah, certainly. So I think, I mean, one of the things that I found most interesting working in Belize is that I think at that point I was really struggling with my own body identity and I was, you know, a long distance runner. And so I I was very much into that idea of having to have that like perfectly slim body. And when I lived in Belize, women made so much fun of me. They said, you have no meat on you. Like what's going on? Um, Because their ideal was very different than ours. So it was a really kind of freeing time for me personally. But as a researcher, it made me really start to appreciate those differences. And the way that women in Belize have a very healthy attitude towards their bodies. And I don't know if, you know, those ideals, some people struggle to reach for the ideal, like for women that are more, you know, born with a very straight body in Belize, but, or in Latin America in general. But generally they seem to have a much more grounded approach than North Americans do, which I find interesting. But I think generally what's really interesting or fascinating to me is that, you know, we do have, we do have so many different ideals historically or, you know, even in the past 20 or 30 years around the world for women's bodies. But there's been this shift, this very like globalized shift in awareness of issues with weight. And so you start to see cultures like, I believe Samoa was one of them that was researched a few years ago where women started to move away from curvier ideals and move towards slim ideals. Because you have TVs coming in for the first time in Samoa, I think that was in the 1990s, or you just have more of a global influence, like you have Instagram and Facebook and things like that, shifting people to think more globally instead of looking at their local values. So that's, to me, been a really fascinating turn in the past few years. Yeah, so I wonder... You know, one of the big questions, because we, I talked to some of the women on the podcast about this idea of beauty and then the perfect body and everything. And I honestly, you know, this is such a complicated subject and, you know, a gray area, like there's no black and white answer to this. But I wonder really, you know, because some women are, and I've had these heated discussions about this is all media, 
influence, you know, media and the diet culture and everything. So this is all basically marketing. So all of these different companies in the wellness industry and everything are specifically promoting and encouraging the image of a perfect body in order for you to, you know, get gym memberships and get the supplements and get on all the diets and like, okay, let's look at fashion, for example, same thing. And so sometimes I wonder whether, like how much, and I'm curious about what you have to say from the perspective of anthropology and history and studying all of this, like how much is of it is really media? Because honestly, I don't believe it's 100% media. I mean, obviously it's cultural shifts and everything. And how much of it is actually health, you know, because I see the benefits and, and, you know, yeah, I'm talking from a perspective of a skinny girl, for example, but like I've never had weight issues. So obviously I can't understand what it might feel like or whatever. I have another issue. I mean, every woman has an issue with her body. For me, it's like an acne. But I'm wondering, I mean, I see the positive side, not necessarily in the media, but like of a healthy lifestyle and not having the extra weight that is not supposed to be on your body. You know, if you have, you know, if you exercise regularly, if you take care of your nutrition and and, and of course there is a balance between everything, right? So we have women who are completely obsessed about, you know, eating and diet and, oh my God, over-exercising. Then there are women who struggle with emotional eating and all of that. So just curious what you have observed, and I guess through your research and also, you know, interviewing the women, how much of it is really marketing, media-driven, and how much of it is actually like health, I guess, perspective and yeah, I know it's a complicated question. Loaded. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I definitely have had similar thoughts as you. And I think you, I would agree with you in that it's not all media. And I think, you know, people try to to pinpoint one simple answer for a cultural phenomenon. And quite often media is like the easiest route, right? Because it's around us always. Yeah, I wonder the the rate or the, I guess the the undercurrent of health has on people's or people fitting into ideals. I think that... I spent a bit of time like researching Instagram actually and looking at how women were using Instagram as a platform to talk about their bodies. And it kind of, it led me to, you know, I was looking at, through all of these photos of women that had posted under, I think it was like Fitspiration hashtags. I was looking at how they used that and how they understood fitness and health. And so many of them had so many different narratives. And there was this overarching pattern of, I guess, body acceptance and self-love, which we've seen really on the rise in the past five years, this this movement towards self-acceptance. So I do think that our understanding of health as a culture, or depending on where you're from, like wherever your culture is, I think that really is a deeply rooted current that isn't focused on a lot. So for North America, for example... I guess our roots are very Christian. I guess if you're thinking from like the Western perspective, there's a very Christian sort of perspective on bodies, which can be very kind of harsh. Like there's this mind-body disconnect that happens a lot in Western societies. And so I think our understanding of health is quite often or historically, it's been very disconnected from our mental well-being, our emotional well-being. So you see the focus on physical health. So I think that's kind of one of those plugs, but there are so many different things that are impacting how people see their health through time. Mm, Yeah, interesting. I'm actually releasing this week when we're recording an interview with Dana Falsetti. I don't know if you've heard about her. Yeah. Really interesting. I mean, this was one of the most mind-blowing conversation I had with a woman about specifically about body positivity. And then the main message I got, and, and you know, she is a plus size woman. And in fact, like if you go to her on Instagram, like literally almost everyone is shocked because she's showcasing her body and she's, I mean, overweight, like she calls herself fat, you know, and she's also a yoga teacher and she's basically this voice for plus size women. And and her whole message is about, you look at me and you think that I'm unhealthy, but have you asked yourself what health is? You know, like Mm -hmm. when we look at skinny women around or women who are, have the perfect bodies, how do you know they're healthy? You know, when we look at addictions such as even, you know, smoking cigarettes or alcohol, we don't look at these people and judge them all over the place uh, with hashtags and comments and everything. But like, am I, so she's asking, am I less healthy than that addicted alcoholic, for example, because I have 
a bigger body and because I'm not, you know, so it was just fascinating how, and so we talked about this idea of holistic health, you know, mind, body health. And so she's just been really this voice of, you know, let's stop shaming people for their weight. Like we're not, we're never shaming people for their smoking problem. You know, we never, we never know what's going on in someone's head, whether they're dealing with depression or self-loathing or self-criticism or whatever, like that's not healthy, you know? <laughs> totally, totally. So it was just like fascinating, it just blew my mind. And it's, it's really interesting how you talk about how Western, the Western world is really, you know, like focused on the physical aspect of the body. And I guess this also goes with perhaps the capitalism economy and how we're all so obsessed on the measures of success and external success, so to say. Uh, It's all about achieving and doing more and how things look and materialism in general, you know? So, and then in other cultures, like things shift and it's not only about that. Uh, Do you know, can you give us an example of a culture that you found? Well, Belize, for example, I don't know, never been to Belize, but I'm assuming that do you know of any cultures or examples that actually have either a totally different perspective on health or just a different approach to it? Yeah, well, um, I think a really good example, I would say Indigenous Canada. So First Nations of Canada, they all have very different cultures. And I'm working with one right now in Ontario, and their version of health is very holistic, which you know, for listeners right now, they're probably thinking, well, you know, we all we all are thinking about holistic health now. That's kind of more on our radar. But I think Indigenous perspectives of health have typically been very holistic from, you know, for forever. So for centuries and centuries, they've always thought about health as not just physical, like how you look on the outside. It's very much grounded in how you feel mentally, how you feel spiritually, your connection to the environment, which I think is a really important and fascinating piece of health that that we tend to forget as well, is, is are we connected to the environment or is environmental health itself? So, you know, water contamination or issues with crop yields each year or changes to, you know, intense weather patterns and things like that. How is that affecting our connection to nature, but also our our actual health? So I'm, I think it's really interesting to be living in a country where you have these very old and very wise beliefs about health. And then you have these more Western values that have kind of been sandwiched on top of that. Yeah. So it's just, I think they're, I'm really starting to appreciate how, how ahead of us they are in terms of health. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Like sometimes I think about it, I'm like, Man, everything goes into in cycles, you know? It, it seems like all of this holistic health movement, we're just going back to the roots now, you know? Appreciate yeah. Like because of the all of the industrial revolution, obviously, and the technological and information revolution that nobody has time for anything anymore. Obviously, like this fast food culture and a lot of the things. And now we're like, no, 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 wait a second. This is actually really damaging to everyone, especially to women, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's really fascinating how we're going back to the roots and to nature and to land. I definitely, in my experience, start appreciating more and more. And especially when I go home, I think on on the episode, on your podcast, we talked about it. I'm like, Sarah, you have no idea how strawberries taste in Moldova, (laughs) you know, Um, and blueberries and like these and apples, like completely different tastes. It's amazing because the land and the culture itself and the economy has not been consumerized, packaged, frozen and whatever. So that's pretty fascinating. So I want to ask you, what are some of the specific kind of trends you see in today? that you find maybe interesting or you're noticing specifically about women's health and women's bodies that are changing or affecting us? Anything you want to share with us? And perhaps something that we should be mindful of as well. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I think some of the biggest trends that I've been noticing, there's a really interesting emergence, I think, within the body positivity movement, but more broadly, where the slim ideal has definitely in North America made its way out. I think it's it, there's been this kind of radical shift towards, you know, you always kind of look to celebrities or celebrity bodies as an example of like what is current for women. And I think like the Kim Kardashian body or the Beyonce body is very much what women are starting to strive more towards. So in a way, there's like a healthy component of that because it's teaching women to love their curves, to love their natural bodies, however they're born. But then there might also be that struggle of, you know, well, my 
my boobs aren't big enough. And so I need to figure out a way to, to make them fit within this new ideal. So I guess be mindful of, <laughs> of going too far in any movement. And then the other one I find really interesting is the, like, the juicing and the detoxing movement. And I think... I don't know if we're still necessarily... Uh, like in Toronto, I, I think it's really big here right now. And I, I worry about some people and or some women in particular thinking that juicing or just like drinking juice for you know three or four days that has been cold pressed as a detox. I worry about what they think it will accomplish because I always come back to the idea of health as holistic. So are you doing this because it's going to make you feel well physically and mentally you're going to be recharged and ready to go and you know, you're, you're really connecting with your body and yourself, or are you doing this because you want to lose weight? So I think those are some of the bigger movements. And I guess detoxing fits into the idea of like clean eating in particular, or like more broadly. So eating very pure foods. I mean, there's nothing bad to that, but I think that as with anything, you know, moderation is kind of king. So there, there's the risk of people going too far and too extreme with those, but yeah, and, and that's I think that's the biggest challenge I think women are facing today with the abundance of information. And, you know, I talk about this in, on other episodes. It's like, how do... Because I get trapped in that as well. You know, there's so many diets, to, like so many trends and things to choose from, from keto to paleo to yeah. gluten and lactose-free and all of these, you know, everybody's just having their own methods of detoxing and holistic living and whatever. And... Oh my goodness. It's like, crazy. <laughs> how do you freaking live in this world? Like how do and 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 you want to you want to do something, right? Like you want to get on a path or of a healthy body, healthy living, especially a lot of women are taking like are the I'd say not necessarily pioneers, but as you mentioned before, the maternal kind of nurturers and the caregivers in our homes, you know? So it's not only us, but we also want our families to be healthy and all of that. And so what would you say to someone, because I'm always kind of confused. And for me, what has worked is finding a practitioner or a specialist who is very much recommended. So for example, right now I work with a naturopath who has been recommended to me, who, you know, has 20 plus years of experience and everything. And I'm like working with one person who knows things, you know, so I don't go out there and like DIY my own health. Primarily I work with her because I have an adult acne problem, but now with, with pregnancy, it's like all over the place. Yeah, yeah. So... I don't know. That that was the solution for me. Of course, it requires money and everything. But are you noticing this trend in, in women, I guess? And then what would you say to someone listening who is searching for answers in terms of food and health and body and like, what is the best way to go about all of this? I mean, it's so daunting and you're right. Like it's just, you know, there's so many quick shifts in what is acceptable and not acceptable to eat. So like, how do you really... How do you really come to terms with what's good for you? And I think my answer would be, I got a lot of, I guess, reprieve in learning nutrition. So, you know, taking a nutrition course or just buying a book, like a basics of understanding nutrition. So you understand like how fats impact the body versus proteins versus complex or simple carbs. And, you know, I guess like it sounds very sciencey, so it might be off-putting, but I think having, even if you have like that basic understanding of what foods are in what categories and how that impacts your body, be it through naturopathy or through a biology course or whatever, I think understanding how they how they impact you is the most important way to, to finding your own, I guess, journey of food. So for me, it's knowing that in understanding what different components of a meal, like proteins versus carbs or whatever, in understanding what foods are what, that helps me feel better about what I'm eating. So I know that if I'm eating carbs, like that's helping to power my brain or sorry, fats, that helps to power my brain and different things like that. So I think thinking about it that way and also um, also working with what you know feels good for you. I think it's not going to be the same diet for everyone that works, right? So if you feel really good eating meats and fish and you know carbs and that's that's what works for you and that's what makes you feel fantastic every day then you just stick to what works for you and explore and explore different ways of thinking about food and about nutrition 
I think these are excellent points, actually. I think education, as you mentioned, is something very important. And, and that would put us, I love this concept. And, you know, in my coaching, and what I've been taught is also you are your own guru. You are your own expert. And what you said about, you know, what feels good in your particular body, because everybody can give you a diet and then you go out there and you do it. And then, you know, you, you just never know. And so... In order to be able to make decisions, you like inform decisions, you need to know what you're talking about. You need to know, okay, is this person like, even though he's a researcher or an academic or whatever, is what he's saying, like in my own experience and my own knowledge and my own research, is what he's saying makes sense for me, right? Um, because if someone has all the degrees and everything, it doesn't really mean that that's the right approach for you. And so I think what you mentioned is education is one of the big, big parts that we can all do. Just educate yourself. So yeah. the basics of nutrition, and I'm still, you know, I have a full journey ahead of me but I'm slowly getting there and, and getting exposed to different ideas and how things work and actually listening to people who have done the research and studied as well. I mean, I, I'm just contradicting myself, right? But still taking on different views and perspectives is a great, just a great approach. And then, yeah, the second thing, the second component completely agreed, like what feels good for you? Because my diet or whatever feels good in my body is not necessarily what will feel good in your body. And so that's an interesting point. Thanks for sharing with us. And Sarah, I want to talk a little bit about food. And I'm just really curious about what have you been learning about food and how it's been affecting our bodies and our cultures. And I mean, again, it's such a vast question, right? <laughs> but yeah. you were interviewing so many interesting people and talking about you know, like medical takes on diet culture and nutrition and mentioned before the art of dining solo. And yeah, so what, what are you seeing today with food and how it's changing? And obviously, you know, we're going to more holistic, but any, any kind of fascinating things that you found out for yourself, for your research that you want to share with us? Yeah, I think two things kind of come to mind when you ask that question. And I think the first one is there is this, shift and this interest in returning to our roots as we talked about. I actually just interviewed this woman who runs a fermentation lab out in Berlin called Edible Alchemy. And she is, you know, she she ferments things. So she has all these bacteria cultures and yeasts and molds and really shifts to or works to shift the perspective on those foods and why they're why they're not gross. They're like historically very important to our bodies. And she taught me a lot about you know, she was giving the example of sauerkraut has a lot of vitamin C in it or fermented foods tend to have a lot of vitamin C. So they're really good for sailors when they're out on the ocean back in the 17th, 18th centuries. And I like never, ever thought about that. So it really, it kind of leads me to, I've been thinking a lot about, about what food fits what body, because as we were talking about, all bodies are different, but I've really been liking the idea of returning to traditional cultural foods for bodies. So the idea that your body has for, especially for women, like for thousands of years has adapted certain cultural foods and lifestyles that, that your body and your stomach in particular has reacted to. And, and in returning to your traditional foods, your body might be more happy than if you're eating very highly processed foods that your body can't digest the same way. And we talk in that interview about how you know gut health has been really big in in terms of um, in terms of food trends. So being aware of your microbiome and your gut health, which leads me to that, I think in particularly for women, that maternal gut instinct or that like very feminine gut instinct that we all have, I, I never really considered that that could also be connected to our food. So what we put into our bodies as food for women literally also helps us have a gut instinct about what we're eating mm. or what we're doing. So that's, that's really interesting. Time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love how you mentioned like going back to the traditional food because it is, I mean, when you look evolutionary, right? Like, or historically, all of us are the, obviously the product of our ancestors. And so how our bodies and then gut function has not 
evolved necessarily, but I guess adapted and everything and all of the foods that we've been eating for the last 20, 30 years, that's not, that's not how our ancestors were, were eating it, you know? That's why I think I was so big and I've kind of tried, like I really like the idea of a paleo diet. And of course, I don't know much about it, but it's going back to the cavemen where it's like, just eat what the cave people would eat, you know? Like meat, veggies, things that you can pick around and things like that. That's not... And when I think of the variety of food and, and oh my goodness, it's like just incredible. I remember, I think I've shared, I might've shared this with you. I remember when I was in the States and I come from Moldova. Yeah. The, one of the tiniest and poorest countries in Europe where we didn't have much choice really, you know, and didn't have much money for the choice. And when I went to the States for the first time in 2006, oh my God, I went to a Walmart, I remember. And I was just walking on the aisle, like, you know, in between aisles. And I was looking at, I was like, what the hell? Like 15 varieties of cereal and then 25 varieties of ice cream and like just variety everywhere. And everybody's competing for that, you know, shelf space and everything. I was like, oh my goodness. And of course I was exposed to all the frozen foods and processed and everything. I was like, wow. And that year I've actually gained I was about 20 pounds and my hormones were like all over the place. And it's, yeah, it was really, really interesting. Cool. Well, that has been fascinating. And, and Sarah, let me ask you a practical question in terms of anthropology, because I think when we think about anthropology, it's like, and you are going on the academic career path, but you also started now a podcast. So I'm just curious about what, what kind of career paths can an anthropologist take and what, is, what are your plans going forward with this? Ooh. So, I mean, I think a lot of people traditionally just expect if you're going through to your PhD, particularly in social sciences like anthro, that you're going all the way through. So you'll eventually come out working as a professor um, or as, you know, a researcher within a university setting. And I think with anthropology, like it's such a unique way of looking at people that it's kind of a disservice that we aren't reaching out more and doing more with the public in fun and innovative ways. So I think for me, I've really, this past year, I mean, I've been working with a health center and looking at different things with them. And it made me start to realize I don't have to just stay in academia where I think what I love about it is that you can, academia very much is just a a way of making or giving you the space to think about ideas and really think through different ideas and theories. But I want to do more practical things. And I think for me in particular with the podcast, I have big plans to continue building that up and, you know, build documentaries and books and like really have fun with with the topic of food and sharing that with a bigger audience. And I think that there are some really cool anthro projects that people can do. Quite often, they're like government jobs. So looking at policy related to health or to the environment or to even to economy, I think there's been an interesting opening for anthropologists looking at businesses. So sometimes in Toronto, they'll hire anthropologists at big business firms to do what's called an ethnography of the business. So getting them to look at the business as a culture and how that can help clients. So they're really interesting ways to look at anthropology beyond academia. And I think people are starting to shift into that a bit more and play with it. But we're just beginning. So there's so much to do, I think. Oh, this sounds amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm just so happy and, you know, just fascinated by this whole movement, especially, you know, when this is um, an area or a movement or just a, an academic, I guess, area that hasn't been popular that much um, or just between closed doors or closed circles, you know, and now it has all becoming, and of course we have social media, we have podcasting and Instagram and everything. So keep educating us, Sarah. I love what you're doing and thanks so much for sharing all of this with us. It's time for tools and resources on Girl Skill. Cool. So let's talk about the tools and resources. So who are some of the people that you're following today? And, you know, they, they might be related to anthropology or not. Totally up to you what, what you want to recommend to us today. Okay. I think the people that I would really recommend, one person that I just started following recently, her name is Kiona and I can't remember her last name, but her Instagram handle is how not to travel like a basic bitch. And she is... yeah. This really brilliant um, 
woman who has like multiple degrees and she works on traveling and like thinking more consciously about how we travel, um, at, particularly as women and the experiences that we can get through that looking beyond like basic traveling, I suppose. She's been one of my favorites lately. I think for me as an anthropologist, I like to not follow a lot of anthro people uh, because it's, you know, it's kind of a bubble. So I think it's fun to move beyond that. Um, And another person that I really love, her name's Kyla Ewart and she's a photographer. So it might sound like a really strange suggestion, but she's this really beautiful, she's a mother to three children and she documents their lives through photography. But she has so many, her captions are so full of very raw, very beautiful understandings of humanity and of motherhood and of childhood. It's just like, she's yeah, absolutely a fantastic. So how do we find her? Oh, she's on Instagram. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so Kyla Ewert, E-W-E-R-T is her last name. Okay, awesome. And we're going to link to all of these women in the show notes, of course. Anyone you want to recommend or should we move on to books? Oh, the last one I would recommend would be Edible Alchemy. I think she, it's two women who run that. It's like a bacteria and fermentation bar. And they talk all about gut health and the microbiome and different ways that you can think about fermenting foods. So that one is ediblealchemy.co on Instagram. Mm, Love it. Awesome. Thank you so much. And now let's move on to books. What are some of the most, uh, perhaps some of the transformational books that impacted your life and you want to recommend? I think the first recommendation I have is one that I recently finished um, by Trina Moyles. So it's the book called Farming, Feminism, and the Fight to Feed the World. And she has she spent about three years traveling around the world um, interviewing women farmers and looking at what it means to be a farmer and how women become farmers, which sounds, you know, you might not necessarily think about that, but a lot of it is looking at do they have to marry into land or do they have the autonomy to move and become farmers themselves? And it's a beautiful book that has a lot of pictures in it as well. So it's like, it really just creates this very visual, stunning visual narrative, I think. And then a second book that I've been really loving and also kind of hating a little bit is this mother, this book called Motherhood by Sheila Hedy or Sheila Hedy. And she talks about, I think she's, she's 38 or 39. So approaching her 40s, and making the decision of whether or not to become a mother. So it's this very introspective and very raw look at what motherhood means in the 21st century. And yeah, so I've been struggling with it because like there's some points that I'm like, yes, this is amazing. And then somewhere I'm like, I don't know if I agree with this or like, are you challenging me as a mother? Yeah, so it really gets you to think about yourself as well. Interesting. That's definitely a book I need to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> mother, is, mother is coming for me as well. Awesome. All right. Anything else? Or this would be it for today. Um, oh, I guess well, just a fun book, I think, is um, a book by Sloan Crosley. It's called um, Look Alive Out There is her new book. And it's a bunch of short essays. And she's very funny. And like it's it, it's really about like a woman navigating her her career in her 30s and and the success that she's um, encountered along the way. So it's, yeah, that's a really fun one as well. <laughs> awesome. So to all the listeners, we're going to have all the links in the show notes. And Sarah, thank you so much for coming. I really enjoyed this interview. And for everyone listening, I highly recommend that they check out your podcast, uh, especially my interview, but also you have yeah. fascinating <laughs> researchers and a lot of people who are coming on and just sharing their stories about food and culture and lot of lot of great stuff out there. So for everyone who wants to know more and follow you and listen to your podcast, where can they go? So anthrodish.com is our main website. So you can check everything out there. We're also on Instagram at anthrodish or you can follow me on my own account, which is sincera D and I post a lot of anthro stuff and like some of the excavations that I'm doing and stuff like that as well. So if you're interested in learning more about anthropology, you can follow me on there. I love how, um, you know, when you say anthro stuff, it it sounds like sexy and cool, you know? Make make anthro cool again. That's that's (laughs) the tagline that should be used. Love it. That (laughs) should be my biography name. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Love it. All right, Sarah. Thank you so much. I wish you good luck with everything and we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. All right, girlfriends. Uh, thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm like losing my words. 
I, I'm telling you, like, life with a newborn is not a joke. Like, sometimes I can't put words together or sentences because I am 24-7 with a newborn who can't talk and just make noises. And sometimes I start making noises. I'm, I'm becoming her in a way. Anyways, whatever. Yeah, don't pay attention to me. All right. So, hope you enjoyed this episode and, you know, found it valuable. And if you did, which I know you did, again... We're back to charging your karmic energy. Share it with your girlfriend or someone who will find this episode valuable and amazing. Send them straight to girlskill.com slash 95 or share it straight from your podcasting app. Maybe this is a girlfriend who is interested in anthropology or health and how it all connects food and culture and all of that stuff. And I mean, all women should listen to this, obviously, but perhaps you have one girlfriend or two that is really interested in what we talked about with Sarah. So again, girlskill.com slash 95. And I'll see you next week. Keep running with the wolves. Send me a message if you like the episode. Basically, leave a review and rating and then send me a message on Instagram. You can find me at Wanderova, W-A-N. D-E-R-O-V-A or you go to girl skill and that then that's gonna link you to my profile I'm telling you like I can't put words together since I have given birth I don't know this is like post-traumatic no post-birth speech um, incompatibility that I'm having anyways I'll stop talking and I'll see you next week bye thank you for tuning in to girl skill Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher to never miss an episode. And never forget that your version of success is uniquely yours to live and experience. Until next time, let's continue redefining female success together. Girlskill.com. Female success redefined.